It's Friday, March 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. They've been hiding underground for 17 years, and very soon, the swarm will hit multiple states. The Brute 10 cicadas will be all over the place beginning in late April or early May. While they might pose an inconvenience, as they come out in the billions, they are a crucial part of the ecosystem. Dr. Sebastian Alejandro Echeverri, scientist and contributor to NBC News, joins us for what to expect and why you don't want to mow your lawn when they come out. Next, Moderna announced this week that they will begin testing their COVID vaccine on children aged 6 months to 11 years. This is the next piece of the puzzle to widen the mass vaccination campaign beyond adults. If all goes well, health officials believe that junior high and high school students could get their shots in the fall and elementary school students early next year. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, the pandemic has created a housing boom, but it's different from the last time. Residential home prices are hitting highs that we haven't seen since 2006. The big winners are people who already own homes because they can take advantage of lower mortgage rates. But on the other side, competition is stiff because of low supply. Nicole Friedman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about the crazy housing market. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They have a startling effect to human populations sometimes. But that's why we're trying to get the word out. They're not a biting insect nor a stinging insect. There'll be a general annoyance, perhaps, but uh, no real harm otherwise. Joining us now is Dr. Sebastian Alejandro Echeverri, freelance journalist and scientist and contributor to NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Echeverri. Hi, Oscar. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to talk cicadas. <laughs> I learned a lot in writing this article. They're really weird animals. Yeah, that's a great thing. They've been hiding underground for 17 years, and yeah. they're about to come out. Uh, they're known as Brood X, the cicadas. Uh, I, I love the time note that you put in the article. <laughs> well, the last time we saw these things, Facebook was brand new. Theaters were showing Spider-Man 2 with Tobey Maguire, and, uh, mm-hmm. and the 2004 Olympics, Summer Olympics, were underway. So this is a long time coming from them. They're going to come out of the ground. You know, a lot of people that live in these areas know that telltale sound, and then you're mm-hmm. going to just be seeing billions of them all over the place. So, Dr. Echeverri, tell us a little bit more about these Brood X cicadas. So these are periodical cicadas. They're different from the cicadas that are here every summer. These are the special ones that only come out every 17 or 13 years. There's multiple species, some of them that have 17-year lifespans, some of them have 13-year lifespans. And what they're doing underground is that they're growing very, very slowly. All cicadas drink sap from trees, and when they're babies, they drink it from the tree roots. So 17 years ago, they hatched from eggs that were laid in tree branches. That's what the moms do at the end of the summer. And they jump down to the soil, they dig down, and they find a tree root, and they start feeding on it. And they're just drinking that sap for years and years and years, growing large enough until they're ready to come out. But the thing is, it's not that it takes them 17 years to grow big enough that they're ready to come out and shed their skin and become adults and start singing and everything. They've actually evolved to wait that long so that they can all come out together. One of the really cool things that I found when talking to cicada scientist Dr. Chris Simon was the origins of like how this really weird 
lifestyle came about because like most animals don't do this right like most right. animals they just breed when they have a chance and they come out when they have a chance and like adults are kind of here and there and you see them you see the babies you see the adults you see the juveniles kind of all mixed together in the world it's only cicadas and then one species of millipedes in japan those are the only animals that live this way and for the cicadas the ones here in north america because they're only found in north america it's like a very special thing that we have here that only we can see Actually, it was millions of years ago when the ice ages were around. It was so cold that the trees were growing very slowly. And so at the time, they had to evolve just to take a lot longer to grow up. So they had enough food. They just had to eat longer for more years. But then at a certain point, it became, well, okay, the more cicadas that are out at the same time, the safer we are because they have this strategy of survival, which is like basically safety in numbers in that they just (laughs) – try to come out as many as possible. And then the ones that get eaten, get eaten. But if there's enough of them, there's enough to survive. Is the full lifespan of these cicadas 17 years? Do they yeah. die shortly after they come out? They're coming out now to party and find a mate. That's what all the singing is about, all the loud noise. <laughs> yeah, It's the three species of 17-year cicadas. They're all coming out mixed together. What will happen is males from each species will pick a tree that's called a chorus tree, and they'll all fly there together. They'll sit in the top of the branches and sing as loud as possible. And their songs are different enough that the females can recognize, oh, hey, that's my species over there. And they will fly to that tree, and then the males will try to do a different song that's like a courtship song. So the mate, the females will lay their eggs in the tree branches, like I mentioned. And then a few months later, like at the end of the summer, the eggs will hatch, and the babies will tumble down from the treetops land on the ground safely, and then start digging to begin it all over again. So, so most of their life is underground. They just have like a few weeks to really enjoy the sun. What states are in for this? Like who's going to get hit really hard by this? There's kind of like three like epicenters. One is around like D.C. and like the surrounding states. That's a pretty decent sized population of the brood 10 cicadas. There's another one down by Georgia and like eastern Kentucky. And then there's another center that's like Southwest Indiana, Illinois area. It's kind of a big cluster. So if you're in that area, one thing you can do is if you go to the University of Connecticut's Cicada website or another website called cicadamania.com, you can see a map of where they came out in 2004. And that's probably where they're going to be now. So if you want to have a sense of, can I see these animals or I won't be able to, (laughs) that's where you find out. One thing I did want to add about Obviously, for some people, it's a lot of animals, a lot of bugs. It can be overwhelming. They're only going to be here for a week. This is their only chance to mate, so let them have that. But there was some advice that I got from one of the scientists that unfortunately didn't make it into the article, and it's that they're really attracted to noise, particularly ones that sound like other cicadas. But there are a few machines that we use that actually sound really similar to them. So lawnmowers in particular and cement cutters were mentioned by name as things that they will think are like cicadas singing to them and fly towards. Wow. So, so, so don't, don't mow, mow your lawn. Your lawn. <laughs> yeah. Just, just give it like for, they have a few weeks, let them have their yeah. weeks, let them just sing and then mow your lawn. That's um, crazy. Because otherwise they'll, they'll be like, oh, hey, there's a cicada down there. I'm going to go hang out with them. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. They, they, you know, yeah. I, I've, I've never experienced cicadas in, in any 
perform like this. I've mm-hmm. only seen videos and I've, I've seen them and, and heard the sounds that they make. So uh, I'm, yeah. I'm very interested to see what the rollout is. You know, like I said, there's uh, there's so many of them. It does uh, get cumbersome. So, you know, I know oh, there's, yeah. uh, there's always some issues related to this. I've seen the stories about it. So we'll keep an eye out. It should be happening in the next few weeks. Dr. Mm-hmm. Sebastian Alejandro Echeverri, freelance journalist and scientist, contributor to NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. I uh, hope y'all enjoyed learning about these cool animals. It's likely that we'll see teenagers down to as young as 12 get the vaccine by the summer. I think that children less than that, down to, say, six years of age or younger, probably won't be seeing vaccines till the end of the year. Joining us now is Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me. The vaccine rollout continues, obviously targeted at adults and, and those that are most vulnerable right now. But the other part of the puzzle is being looked into now. Moderna is testing its COVID-19 vaccine on young children. The trial that they're going through is going to involve children ages six months to 11 years. And as I mentioned, this is kind of the important other part. Thankfully, kids are spared the worst effects of COVID-19, but they still can get it and they still can transmit it. So, Peter, tell us a little bit about what Moderna is doing. The vaccine has been approved for use in adults uh, 18 and older. And same with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine is approved for people 16 and older. So basically the focus of the vaccination campaign so far has been on adults because age is is, um, an important element in who is vulnerable to severe disease. And the older you are, the more vulnerable you are. And And so the risk in children of getting severe disease is lower relative than to what it is in adults, but there still is some risk. And so what the companies have been doing is in steps, they've been studying the vaccine in people younger than 18. And so Pfizer and Moderna had already started trials in adolescents, basically 12 and up. And the results of those trials, they could be released relatively soon, just seeing whether it's safe and effective in them. And now what this news this week represents is moving down on the age scale. And so Moderna is now testing in kids under 12. Pretty soon, I think Pfizer will also start a study, I believe, in 5 to 11-year-olds. But yeah, so this will basically complete the testing of the full age range, and they want to just see how how it performs in kids. Health officials said that if all goes according to plan and the studies turn out positive, that junior high and regular high school students could have access maybe in the fall and elementary school-aged children maybe in early 2022. So obviously still some time to go through there. They are, as you mentioned, testing uh, very young kids here. Kids as young as six months. That seems pretty young. Is, is there anything that, uh, a particular reason why they're going that young? Yeah, I think that's grabbing a lot of people's attention. It's important to keep in mind that there are existing childhood vaccines that are given to infants. There was a vaccine trial for a rotavirus vaccine about 15 years ago that I think enrolled about 70,000 babies on whom that vaccine was tested and then and it proved to be successful. I think that Moderna is just trying to get a sense of how it performs in the different age groups. They don't want to go any younger than six months for now, at least, just because they feel like that's pretty young and the, and, the, and a baby's um, immune system is less mature before that time. So they're going to do it in phases and they're going to 
they're going to test different doses in kids in the first part of the study to try to arrive at what is the appropriate dose, because it might be different from what the adult dose level is. And then once they arrive at a dose, then they'll broaden the study and just get a better assessment of of how safe and effective it is. The uh, Moderna study, they said, is going to be kind of a combined phase two and phase three trial. They're looking to enroll about 6,750 children in all this and then kind of go through those two parts that you just mentioned, the dosing, which I'm, I'm sure is going to get a lot of attention too, as, especially since the kids are younger, right? Their immune systems are still developing. So they want to make sure that they get that dosage right. They really want to strike the right balance between, you know, effectiveness on the one hand and any sort of even temporary or transient side effects. Like, so we've seen with the adult population, some of these vaccines particularly in the two-dose vaccines after the second dose, can really lay a person low for like a day or two and and give them symptoms like flu-like symptoms or just headache and fatigue. And so, you know, it's possible that some of those symptoms also could be seen in kids. That's what they need to test it for. But I think there's also a recognition that that becomes maybe a more more magnified issue as parents think about, do I want to expose my kid to have those side effects, even if it's temporary, given the relative risk of COVID-19 disease to the kids. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. a lot of people who you know have good credit, they have money saved for a down payment, they have a good job, they are ready to make that purchase, and they just can't compete with people that have all cash or have more cash, people that can waive the inspection, waive the appraisal. Joining us now is Nicole Friedman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about the housing market right now. The pandemic has ignited this big housing boom. We've been hearing a lot about it. Residential home sales are hitting these peaks that we haven't seen since 2006. Things are a little different than the last time, though. The last time the housing market bubble burst and we know what happened then. But this time, uh, you know, mortgages are stricter. Down payments are higher. The supply of available homes is a lot smaller, and that's supporting these higher prices that we're seeing. I've been actually trying to buy a house throughout this time, too, and it has been nuts for me personally. So, Nicole, tell me a little bit more about what's going on in the housing market. So we saw home sales last year really kind of exceed expectations. And partly that was actually due to the pandemic, which came as somewhat of a surprise to people who would expect there's a pandemic and then a recession and that would weigh on home sales. But, you know, part of what we've seen during the pandemic and this recession is that really the economy has gone in kind of a K shape is what they talk about, this widening inequality. And so People who lost jobs and really struggled in the past year tended to be people who had lower paying jobs, who are renters. And a lot of homeowners or potential homeowners were able to work from home and keep their jobs. And those people were saving more money, not going out, not traveling, and have actually been able to take advantage of low interest rates and buy homes during this time. And so for those who were lucky enough to keep their jobs in the past year, this has turned out to be a really attractive time to buy a home. And so we've seen home sales really accelerate in 2020. And there's expectations that this year will be strong too, that there's a lot of demand out there to buy homes. 
So this time around, though, as I mentioned, everything's a little more stable. Economists aren't fearing necessarily a big bubble burst this time around. What else is helping contribute to that? I know millennials are in their prime home buying years right now, and uh, new home construction hasn't kept up with the demand. That's why we have such a short supply. So that's also supporting uh, the prices that are up there. So one thing that housing economists say when I ask them, you know, are we in a bubble? How does this boom look like compared to the last one is, you know, they say this time around, it's really being driven by actual demand, people who want homes to live in, as opposed to in the mid 2000s, a lot of that boom was driven by easy access to credit. Mortgages were easy to get. People were buying homes and putting down very little in down payments, sometimes nothing in down payments. And they were buying, you know, maybe two, three, four homes, seeing them as investment properties, counting on house prices to keep going up. And this time around, it's a totally different scenario. Something that a lot of executives in the housing industry point to is the demographic changes that this millennial generation, as you mentioned, it's the largest living adult generation in the U.S. And millennials are kind of aging into their early 30s. And so this is very much a time when A lot of millennials are ready to buy that first house or even older millennials ready to sell their first house and move into their second. And so there's a lot of demographic demand that economists expect to last for years as the millennial generation kind of continues to enter its 30s. And then right behind it is Gen Z, which is another big generation. So demographically, they expect this demand to continue and also supply is low. So there has not been as much home building in the last decade as there was in the decade before that. So it is not so easy to find homes on the market to buy. And so buyers are competing really fiercely for homes. They're getting into bidding wars. They're having trouble finding enough inventory. For those trying to break into the market for the first time, it's been so tough. Just on the the availability of homes as one part of it has been tough. And then definitely, you know, when you're competing and you're bidding stuff, people are getting blown out of the water with hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's not even close sometimes. It is really frustrating for a lot of home buyers out there. I talk to a lot of people who, you know, have good credit. They have money saved for a down payment. They have a good job. They are ready to make that purchase and they just can't compete with people that have all cash or have more cash, people that can waive the inspection, waive the appraisal that are even in a totally different sphere financially than they are. And I think that is really one of the main hallmarks of this current housing boom is that this is really a boom for people who are already homeowners. This is a boom that is really benefiting people who are already in the market, benefiting the wealthy. A lot of homeowners who saw big equity gains in the last year, you know, they're buying second homes or they're, you know, maybe taking out some of that equity with a refinance, lowering their monthly payments saving more money or they're spending that money on a renovation. And so this is really benefiting the people who already were in the market. But for those people trying to get in, home prices are rising quickly. And so even if interest rates are low, which keeps the monthly payments down, the higher the home price, the bigger that initial upfront down payment cost. And so first-time home buyers who they don't have a home they can sell to get that money for the down payment. They have to get that from savings or family or friends. And so those first-time home buyers are really struggling to, first of all, gather the money for a down payment. And then secondly, to compete against people who are in the market and have even more cash. Nicole Friedman, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.